0: Our speaker tonight is well-known classicist Mary Beard, scholar, author of both popular and scholarly works, as well as a television presenter. Born in Shropshire, England, she read classics at Newnham, continued her doctoral work at the University of Cambridge, and after working at King's College London for uh, a period, returned to Cambridge, where she remains. Uh, She is the classics editor of the Times Literary Supplement and author of the popular blog, A Don's Life, which is also a column in the Times. In addition to television, Beard contributes to the BBC Radio 4 series, uh, A Point of View. She's the general editor and occasional author of the series, Wonders of the World, uh, small volumes geared toward the intelligent ignorant She's penned over 13 books herself and was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Confronting the Classics in 2013 when she was also awarded an OBE, Order um, of the British Empire. This evening, she shares her perspective from her latest book, SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome, favorably reviewed on both sides of the pond. Um, Please join me, one of the intelligent ignorant, in welcoming her.
1: Thank you very much, everybody. I've been warned that the acoustics in here are um, not always totally perfect. So please, if you can't hear me, um, will you wave and say, can't hear, uh, rather than complain afterwards? (laughs) Which I've had before. (laughs) Okay, Uh, I first went to Rome um, over 40 years ago in 1973. And I well remember that one of the things that struck me most vividly wasn't anything to do with the ancient remains uh, or the Renaissance art. It was the fact that still stamped onto every manhole cover Onto every lamppost and trash can were the letters uh, SPQR Senatus Populusque Romanus the Senate and Roman people, which two thousand years earlier had stood as an abbreviation for the ancient state of Rome itself and even now is a symbol and a logo of the modern city of Rome. And I think it must probably count as the longest-lasting acronym in the history of the planet, actually. Now, I would never have believed in 1973 that I would wind up over 40 years later having written a big history of ancient Rome with exactly that title S-P-Q-R, and I'm here tonight to address what I think is the most obvious question that that book raises, to put it very bluntly, why on earth do we actually need another history of ancient Rome? You know, haven't we actually got enough already, right? So I hope this evening that I'm going to convince you that we do need to keep going back to Rome afresh and to give you a little taste of what my own version is like. Now, the first reason that I'm going to give is very simple. That is, new things about the ancient world are being discovered all the time. Ancient Rome is changing in unexpected ways that a historian writing 50 years ago, uh, let alone Gibbon writing his decline and fall in the 18th century, in ways they could never have imagined. And that's often through the appliance of modern Mm -hmm. science. One of my very favourite examples is the material that's coming up from the Greenland Ice cap, where in very deep borings, scientists are bringing up cores of ice which still contain the analyzable traces of pollution that is left by Roman industrial processes. Pollution at a level not matched until almost 2,000 years later. Now I'm afraid that I can't actually show you um, a slide of one of the cores themselves and I expect if you think for a minute you'll guess that all this analysis is a little bit more complicated than drilling down into the ice cap, bringing up the ice and then looking for the little bits of black. It's not quite as simple as that. But here is a fridge in which one of the cores is actually kept in Utrecht. Um, And you might say at this point, well, where does this pollution come from? And the main answer to that, we don't fully know, but the main answer to that is almost certainly uh, the huge silver mines in, in Spain that uh, most of the silver coins you see uh, from the Roman Empire uh, came from silver mined in Spain. It was a vast industrial process and very, very likely what we're seeing in the Greenland ice cap is actually the the remnants of the industrial work uh, in Roman Spain. I'm sorry I can't show you the core, um, but I can show you a skull. Um, I can show you one of the skulls from Roman Britain, which is the subject of some equally cutting-edge and changing science, which is beginning to help us track the migration and the movement of people across the Roman Empire. Now... We have had some very tantalising glimpses already before we've been able to do any big scientific analysis. We've had some tantalising glimpses of the way people got around in the Roman Empire, the way Roman Empire was actually the the centre of a highly mobile population. And some of them have been, in fact, very intriguing and I'm going to show you my favorite here. Um, This is actually a tombstone uh, from the north of Britain. Uh, And at first sight, it's nothing terribly uh, special. We've got a lady here um, and her biography uh, written um, underneath her. Um, It's a memorial in some ways quite a conventional way to a woman. Sadly, someone bashed off her face at some point. Um, but she's sitting here with a little treasure chest and some woolworking on her lap. But underneath, the text is actually quite interesting and tells a more surprising story than you might imagine. It explains that she was a girl, woman, called Regina, In Latin, Regina basically means queenie, I think, in modern English. And she came from the south of Britain, um, from the Catavalonian tribe, um, which was a couple of hundred miles away from where she died. It makes it clear she had been a slave, but had been freed. She was called a liberta. But more interesting is that she'd married a man called Baratis, who, he says, came from Palmyra in Syria. He was Palmyrenus, right? And here, uh, Baratis, the Palmyran, on Hadrian's Wall in the north of Britain, commemorates his wife both in Latin here, but underneath... In his native Aramaic. So you've got a bilingual inscription of this very bilingual couple. And obviously, this uh, memorial raises all kinds of questions. Like, you know, first, what on earth was Baratis, the Palmyran, doing uh, in the north of Britain on Hadrian's Wall? And how had he hitched up with Queenie? From the Catawalorian tribe. Now, my guess is, but it's only a guess, is that he had been her owner and had freed her and married her. But then you go on and you think so, what language did they speak at home? You know, was it Aramaic or Latin or some sort of Celtic stuff? And when they stepped out, you know on you know in the little towns in Hadrian's wall did this couple look odd or did they look absolutely normal you know but did people say, oh that's that funny couple you know he's from Palmyra and she's from down South or was it absolutely standard? Now we don't know the answer to any of those questions at all, but we do now know that this couple, Baratis and Queenie are just one isolated example of the mobility of people even within within Roman Britain. And Roman Britain was about the most backwater province in the Roman Empire you could ever get. Um, Even there, the Roman Empire was a, a highly mobile place. And we can start to track that more widely through the analysis of skeletal remains. And not just rely on uh, one or two tombstones. And the key giveaways in the skeletal remains are not just the skulls, but particularly the teeth in the skulls. And this is really work of the last 10, 15 years. Because the adult teeth we now see, of any individual, ourselves included, still contain the chemical traces of the environment where the person was living when the teeth were forming in the jaw. Now that kind of analysis is still not yet very precise, but one thing we can tell is whether the person had obviously grown up in a warmer climate than the one in which they died. And warmer is not always very specific in the case of Roman Britain that might have been the south of France or the north of Africa but you can still see significant climatic differences and what this is beginning to tell us and that we've never known before although sometimes have tried to guess it is that probably something not much less than 20% of the people in the towns of Roman Britain Whose skeletons we found had grown up in a significantly different climate. Now, that is an extraordinary total for a pre industrial empire uh, where we tend to imagine a fairly static population. So, that's another thing where you know, that's not, we knew a bit about that before, but you can now write about the mobility of these people quite differently. But I have to say, my favorite example is the skull again. My favorite example um, is this. It's a, a, another kind of new discovery. And in fact, um, it's a large sewer, uh, or more correctly, actually a cesspit in ancient Herculaneum, uh, the town very close to ancient Pompeii, uh, also destroyed in 79 AD with the eruption of the Vesuvius. And it's a cesspit, here being cleaned out by this noble worker here, Um, it's a cesspit underneath a small block of Roman apartments, a pretty ordinary block of Roman apartments. And it is where literally everything from the lavatories in the apartment blocks above ended up completely Unmediated and eventually decomposed. Now, this is basically the basement up here where you can't see. You've got an apartment block, and there are shoots down from the lavatories into this, and nothing happens for 2,000 years except the excrement decomposes. In other words, what this guy is busy collecting uh, is the remains of what went into the mouth and then through the digestive tracts of the completely ordinary people living above. It's all been rediscovered, it's been bagged up into bags and bags and bags of it and taken off to Oxford where at this very minute it is being carefully analysed. I have to say, it sounds absolutely foul. When I looked at it, I thought it was going to be all really excrementy. It just is kind of rather good garden compost, actually. But it is giving us, through very careful analysis, enormous amounts of information about what these people, these ordinary people in the apartments above, were eating and it's taking us away for one of the first times from the fantasies of roman cookery that we get from roman literature the exotic fantasies of things like you know oh pass the dormouse uh, stuffed with anchovy and honey please you know that kind of stuff there may have been that sort of stuff in rome i'm not saying there weren't but ordinary people as we've already been able to guess but now can see very clearly were eating Quite different things, much more predictable things. They were eating fruit and figs and pomegranates and eggs and pork and chicken and fish. That's what you find in the remains of the excrement. Here, it's also very clear that they were finding um, sea urchins, because they're living near the sea, a particular delicacy, because there's loads and loads and loads of little fragments of sea urchin spikes. imagine might have been slightly painful, actually, ah. but maybe not. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's all, they've all kind of got soft. Now, Those are all the sorts of new things or new ways of getting much fuller information than we've ever been able to get at before in the Roman Empire. And I'm going to be coming back to just one other new discovery at the end of this talk. At this point, I want to pause a bit and say that new discoveries are important. But they're not the main reason why you need a new history of Rome. They're only part of it. Because I think it goes without saying that history isn't simply about uncovering the past, taking a look at it, and moving on. It's about carrying on a sort of conversation with the past. And the different questions that succeeding generations want to raise about history, produce different answers, and give a different kind of dialogue that we can have with the past. And they, in a sense, generate a new sort of history that works and speaks to us. History, and this is a bit of a cliché, but I think it's true, history then is always a work in progress. You you can never write a history that's going to be definitive forever. It's not that we're better or worse historians than our predecessors. We just have different interests and different priorities, and we want to make the past speak in different ways. And Roman history is a very, very obvious case of that. One thing I think that no one could miss and it's something that's changed absolutely dramatically during my lifetime, is how issues of Roman women, sexuality and gender have been treated. I mean, to be honest, I think looking back when I was a student, women weren't thought to have much of a role in the grand sweep of the Roman historical narrative which was largely about the policies, the aspirations, the deeds, the misdeeds, and the writing of rich Roman men. The only exception, I suppose, uh, was in the family of the Roman emperor himself, where women were sometimes assumed to be the power, and usually the very nasty power, behind the throne. And none was nastier than the Empress Livia, the wife of the first emperor, Augustus, who, as a jealous mother, is supposed to have got rid of everyone who stood in the way of her own son, Tiberius, rising to the throne. In the end, she's even supposed to have killed, some said, her husband, Augustus, the emperor, an extremely clever strategy. Augustus, of course, as emperor, uh, was always on his guard against poisoning and had all his food very carefully tasted when it came to his table. He wouldn't touch it without. So what Livia is supposed to have done is to have painted poison on the figs as they grew on the trees in a palace garden because no one ever bothers to test for poison a fig they pick directly off the tree. And it made, I have to say, a marvellous moment um, in the old TV series which are, was shown both here and uh, in the UK of I, Claudius in the 1970s when Sean Phillips, who you see here, um, as Livia, when she's just actually killed off Augustus, she turns to Tiberius, uh, who, who's come to sort of become emperor, and says in a very camp way, oh, by the way, don't touch the figs. <laughs> The best moment. It had nothing to do with Robert Graves. It was entirely the invention of the BBC scriptwriter. But it was brilliant. Now it's partly the result not entirely, but partly the result of modern feminism that most historians now and not all, but most don't take those kind of stories quite so straight and quite so uncritically as they used to, even though they go back to Roman writers themselves. I think we're now much more aware of the way that in highly patriarchal societies such as Rome, male fantasies often project crime and wicked scheming onto women who happen to be close to the centre of power. Women and transgressive female ambition is often used as an explanatory device for the accidents of history. And, you know, I say that was characteristic of the highly patriarchal society of ancient Rome. I don't think it's entirely gone away in the fairly patriarchal society uh, of the modern West. Um, And it always seemed to me that there was a touch of the Livia about the way the British press used to treat Sherry Blair... He so so why has Tony quarrelled with Gordon, right? Well, that's because Sherry, you know, and you can then write it. Sherry, she wasn't supposed to have poisoned anybody, but she was supposed to, I don't think. um, But um, she was supposed to be an influence there. She was a way of explaining uh, things we couldn't otherwise explain. So I suppose when I'm writing now, I'm obviously telling a very different story of Roman history with those kind of, you know, basically feminist issues in mind. And certainly if you get my book, there are very, very many fewer poisoners in it than in previous versions. And I suppose I should add at this point that my title too, uh, SPQR, is an attempt... uh, not just thinking of women, but to rescue another rather ignored or abused group in Roman history, and SPQR Senatus Populusque Romanus. I'm trying to parade uh, the importance of the people alongside the elite senate and to remind us all that Roman history isn't just about the upper class. It's about women, the people, and the upper class. But the big example with which I start the book is one that has a particular modern resonance and is particularly interestingly inflected, I think, by modern political debate. It's a famous moment in 63 BC. And centre stage is this man here, Marcus Tullius Cicero. And he's one of the best known Romans of them all, volumes and volumes of copies of his letters and his speeches and his philosophical essays and even his jokes still survive. Not to mention his starring role in modern novels. Robert Harris's recent trilogy um, sets Cicero very much uh, at the centre of a way of seeing uh, this period of Roman history. In 63, when this painting is set, this 19th century painting, Cicero uh, was consul. He was the annually chief elected official in Rome. And he believed that he had unearthed a terrorist plot to overthrow the government and to burn the city down and to eliminate its chief officers. And that plot was supposed to have been led by this guy here, uh, a disgruntled aristocrat called Lucius Sergius Catalina, or usually just Catiline to us. And what this painting does, it's a painting, interestingly enough, uh, commissioned to decorate the modern Italian Parliament building. (laughs) I don't know what Berlusconi made of this when he looked at it what this uh, does it shows Cicero here actually in full flow denouncing the rather moody Catiline over here who interestingly no one wants to sit next to uh, it's not I have to say an entirely accurate portrayal of the Senate House which was never a semicircular building like this seems to be um, but it's not bad Um, The speech we have to imagine that our Cicero at this minute is uttering actually still survives. because It's been copied and studied and practiced ever since November 63 BC. And it's still on school and college Latin syllabuses all over the Western world. It's known as the first speech against Catiline. And you're going to need this in a minute. It starts, the speech, with one of the most famous Latin quotations of all. Quo squay tandem erbutere, Catalina patientia nostra. How long, Catiline, he says, as he denounces the terrorist, how long will you go on abusing our patients? Um, The speech was a success. I have to say, um, the upshot was that poor old Catiline, next to whom no one would sit, um, uh, fled the city soon after this speech was delivered. Whether he was as guilty as charged, we shall never know, but he certainly joined a makeshift army and was later killed in battle against the official forces of Rome. Catiline had gone. What Cicero did in Rome itself was round up the rest of those that he believed to be in the plot with Catiline and he executed them without trial claiming the justification and the protection of an early form of Homeland Security Act Prevention of Terrorism Act he came out of the prison where he'd overseen the executions uh, to meet the public and he uttered just one chilling word. He said, vixere, which meant they have lived, i.e., they're not living any longer, they're dead. Now, to start with, this was an heroic moment for Cicero, uh, and he was called the saviour of the Roman state, he had saved Rome from the terrorist plot. But soon, doubts began to arise over the legality of Cicero's actions. Because one of the fundamental principles of Roman citizenship was that the citizen, unlike the non-citizen, was always entitled to a fair and free trial and could not be arbitrarily punished by any state official, no matter what crime they were suspected of. And before too long, Cicero found himself in exile on the charge of having executed citizens without due process. And as he left town, his house was demolished and a shrine of the goddess Liberty was erected on its site. He was allowed to come back a few months later, but his career never quite recovered. Now, that dilemma, Cicero versus Catiline, was debated ever after at Rome. It was used as part of the rhetorical practice exercises for young would-be Roman orators. Whose side would you take? But it doesn't take much to see the echoes or the prequel here of our own debates on almost exactly the same unanswerable an question. How do you balance the security of the state against the rights of the individual citizen? So Cicero versus Catiline is always in my mind, at least, when we debate detention without trial, Guantanamo Bay, or recently the killing by British forces of British citizens fighting in Syria for ISIS. If you want a glimpse of the nice topicality of this incident, just take a look at these Hungarian protesters a couple of years ago. <laughs> They're actually blazoning in Latin Cicero's very slogan, quo usque tandem, how long will you go on abusing our patience? Now, of course, the rights of Roman citizenship are not new in their engagement with modern political debate. But they're always being reinflected and readjusted according to new circumstances. Now, I know that in Boston this is a rather dangerous example to take, but if you go back 50 years to uh, the middle of the Cold War, you will find John F. Kennedy exploiting slightly different ideas about Roman citizenship for slightly different reasons in his Ich bin ein Berliner speech. And there he is. This is what he said. 2,000 years ago, he insisted, the proudest boast was quivis Romanus sum. I am a Roman citizen. Today, he went on in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is ich bin ein Berliner. Uh, One of the most famous uh, speeches of the 20th century. But there is actually I can't resist telling you a little sting in the tail of this, and it's not about the Berliner. Um, uh, what Kennedy or his speechwriters probably didn't realise was that the most famous and most quotable use of that phrase, "quis Romanus sum," in ancient Rome, had been a decidedly awkward one, because those were the words. Repeatedly cried out from the cross by an unfortunate and entirely innocent citizen on the island of Sicily when he was being crucified by a rogue Roman governor. Now, even if guilty, Roman citizens were by law immune from such degrading punishment. The man was desperately trying to claim his citizen rights, Kiwis Romanus sum, Kiwis Romanus sum. It made not a blind bit of difference, and he died in agony. It wasn't a terribly good analogy for Ich bin ein Berliner, quite frankly, but Kennedy got away with it. Um, Overall, I suppose, what I'm claiming is that in many ways the principles and practice of Roman citizenship really do, though in very different ways, and this is where different sort of histories come in underpin western political debate over the last uh, 300 or 400 years much more forcibly I think than debates and the principles and practice of Athenian democracy and of course we're coming into yet a new phase about that uh, when we think about rights of citizenship, particularly, but not only, in modern Europe and uh, uh, migration, uh, refugees and asylum seekers. And I think it's worth saying here that uh, the, the words illegal migrant uh, are something that no Roman would ever have understood. Uh, the Roman city was based on an image of its origins as actually being a city of asylum seekers. And I think that there's quite a lot of work to be done on the relationship between our sense of what asylum is and Roman sense. But I want to to finish now and spend the very last part of this talk going back to some, particularly one new discovery and sharing actually a, a, a rediscovery that I've made myself and one that i made after SPQR had gone to press, because I think it's a nice indication of not only how new things about ancient Rome turn up all the time, but in very, very, very unlikely places. Uh, just to set the context, one of the questions that I address in SPQR is the tricky question of when Rome became Rome. That's to say... The place starts off in the ninth or eighth centuries BC as a small, very ordinary place by the Tiber. To be honest, it's a bit of a dump, a backwater. When does it become the Rome that we know, with the institutions, the ways of doing things, the expansionist tendencies? that we know as Roman, when, if you like, does it become SPQR? Now, I don't want to give away all the answers to that, but I don't think it will spoil the read if I say that I'm pretty clear that the key formative or transformative period of Roman history is not actually until the 4th century BC, when Rome was already 400 at least years old. And alongside that... I'm pretty clear that the first Romans we encounter who are more historical than mythical, certainly the first we have any direct primary evidence for, lived around the turn of the 4th and 3rd centuries BC. And the first one of all who's quite a hero in my fourth chapter, is a man from one of the most prominent Roman families of all. He's called Scipio Barbatus, Scipio Longbeard, or Scipio Beardy. And he was, that's why I like him, I suppose, he was consul in 298 BC, when Rome had already gained control of much of the Italian peninsula and was on the cusp, but hadn't yet expanded overseas. His descendants, men like Scipio Africanus and Scipio Aemilianus, went on to be some of the most successful or some of the most bloodstained, depending on whose side you were on, Roman conquerors of all. It was Africanus and Aemilianus who, between them, sent Hannibal and the Carthaginians packing. Now, almost all the traces we can find of Barbatus, and you'll see some in a minute, look very archaic. And they would have looked very archaic to later Romans too. But at the time, that cusp period between the 4th and 3rd centuries BC, he was a hugely innovative representative of the new Rome. Among other things, he was the first to build himself a big family tomb on the very first big road that was ever built out of a city, the famous Appian Way. Uh, This is the younger Pyrenees' extremely imaginative version of the tomb, (laughs) but I don't imagine ever anything like that. But you can actually still visit this place. Um, uh, That's what it looks like on the inside, slightly spooky, Family, sort of largely underground mausoleum, and uh, this is uh, the rather down at outside with one of my friends on her iPhone. Um, and inside, this is the sarcophagus of Scipio Barbatus himself, and inscribed on its front is what is effectively the first surviving mini-biography of any Roman, the earliest surviving mini-biography of Roman ever to survive. And it's extraordinary, revealing of the ideology of this period. We don't exactly know when Scipio Barbatus died, but let's say about 280. So we're, we're still 200 plus years from the assassination of Julius Caesar. And Here are the words on the sarcophagus, which tend to speak for themselves. Um, There's a Latin there, English slightly bigger. It's his name, Cornelius Lucius Scipio Barbatus. His dad, he was born of his father, Gnaeus. His virtues, he was a brave man, and he was wise. Quite interesting phrase here. His appearance was equal to his virtue. So he looked the part of being a good Roman aristocrat. Here are his offices. He was consul, censor and aedile. And then his military glory. He captured his Kizana and Samnium. He subdued all Lucania and he took hostages. Right? Now, you can see what I mean by saying that at this point, the Romans had become the Romans that we recognise. But, there is another story here that I've been tracking down over the last few weeks, and which re- leads right back, very physically, to Barbatus himself. And that is the story of the tombs uncovering in the late 18th century, in fact, in 1780 to be precise. The excavation of the tomb was something of a cause celebre, because it was sponsored by Pope Pius VI, he took all the stuff worth having back to the Vatican, raising quite a lot of questions about whether the Catholic Church should really have been disturbing the last resting place of these Scipios, even if they were pagans. So what you now visit, actually, when you go to the tomb, what you see are exact copies of what was found there, and if you want to see the real thing, which is this, you actually have to go to the Vatican Museums, where they still are. Now, it was partly those arguments about propriety uh, that gave the tomb a huge fame in the 19th century, and it made it um, one of the tourist hotspots of the city of Rome which it certainly is not today people want to go to say how terrible all this is, fancy the Pope doing this uh, and
0: th-
1: the whole culture of the team of the Scipios in a way that we've entirely lost um, spread across Europe and America and indeed replicas of Barbatus's coffin uh, crop up in some very strange Places. Keep that in your mind. And now, here's one. Um, go back to this, you see. This is what we've got. Um, this is a replica of Barbatus 's coffin in Highgate Cemetery, North London. It's the last resting place of a female novelist. Uh, and here uh, is one in Philly, in Laurel Hill Cemetery, Philly. And this is the last resting place of Commodore Isaac Hull of the U.S. Navy. If you go to the Protestant Cemetery in Rome, you can find uh, no fewer than nine versions of this sarcophagus, all in the late 18th, early 19th century, not quite lined up in a row, but almost. And just suppose you didn't actually fancy being buried in the coffin of Scipio Barbatus. You could always turn it into what every 19th-century gent's desk required, which was a Scipio Barbatus inkwell, which is what you have here. Uh, this, you take the top off, and there's there's little, little dishes in which you put the ink and the nibs underneath. I managed to acquire one for myself recently at auction in Cambridge. Right. But it doesn't take long to see that there's another question lurking here. If the Pope took the coffin of Barbatus back to the Vatican, what happened to the mortal remains? People were worried about disturbing the dead, but where had the dead actually gone? Now, it seems that the bones themselves, of Barbatus at least, ended up in an elaborate villa garden in Padua after they'd been given by the Pope to a well-known Venetian senator, Quirini, who incorporated them into his rather extravagant philosophical garden at Altichiero. This is a drawing of the memorial now of Scipio Barbatus um, in which the bones from the tomb in Rome were apparently put. I have no idea what the phallic symbols, number one and number two, were doing on either side of it, but uh, we probably will never know because the whole garden has been destroyed and I've got no idea yet what happened to Barbatus's bones. But there was something else happening because on his finger in his coffin, Scipio Barbatus had been wearing a signet ring. Now and this didn't go to Padua with the bones, because the French gave it, the Pope gave it to a French scholar, Monsieur Dutant, who had written learned works on the Scipio family. And Monsieur Dutan later sold it, or gave it, to the English Lord Barclay. And in the late 19th century, by a combination of sale and inheritance, Barbatus's signet ring had apparently ended up in the collection of the Duke of Northumberland in Annick Castle in the north of England, now better known as being the place where Harry Potter movies are filmed and some bits of Downton Abbey. After that, nobody says anything about Scipio Barbatus's ring. So, when I emailed the Duke's administration at Annick a few weeks ago, I didn't really have much of a hope that Scipio Barbatus' ring would still be there. But after a certain kind of ducal delay... um, (laughs) ..I had to wait some time, I got an email back to say that, indeed, the ring was still in their possession... And here it is, this is the very ring that Scipio Barbatus in the 280s took with him to his tomb. It's plain gold and appropriately enough I think for uh, the military ambitions of the Scipio family it has a personified figure of victory with a wreath as her wings as its main emblem. I think i have to confess that for me there's a bit more of a special thrill to this this i think must count as the only bit of roman jewelry that we can actually match up with a known historical owner it's the only ring with a name attached And it's this founder of the Tomb of Escipios, a major character at the very, very earliest 3rd century BC. And where does it turn up? It turns up in a British medieval castle. And I have to say that if I wasn't here in the US, I would be hot-footing it up to Northumberland and hoping that they would let me not just look at it, But try it on. (laughs) Uh, Whether that's going to happen or not, we don't know. But one thing is for sure. If my SPQR is lucky enough to have a second edition, this ring is certainly going to be in it. Uh, You will know you saw it first here. So thank you very much.